I'll start with a chant. <clears throat> Sahana Vavatu, Sahano Bunaktu, Sahavir Yam Karva Vahai, Tejasvinavati Tamas Tu, Ma Vinvishavahai. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. <clears throat> May Brahman protect us and guide us and give us strength and right understanding. May love and harmony be with us all. Om Peace, Peace, Peace. <clears throat> Thank you, Jayanti. That was a beautiful song. So really, you know all you need to know, and we can go home now. <laughs> However, I've been asked to speak, so here it goes. <clears throat> so um, this weekend is an auspicious time. The Vedanta Society of Southern California is celebrating the 125th anniversary of Swami Vivekananda's visit to California. And the introduction of the message of Vedanta here in California as well. The Society is also celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Ramakrishna Monastery in Tribuco. Uh, senior ministers from the Vedanta centers across America and several of our own nuns here from Santa Barbara will be attending and speaking at these events. So I am filling in today for the monastic members of the society who normally give the Sunday lecture here in Santa Barbara. Uh, many of you know me already, but for those who don't, uh, and I don't know how many don't know, but anyway, it's too late, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so um, I earned my PhD in religious studies through much toil and sweat, uh, under the direction of Professor Gerald Larson, who was very kind, but I took Sanskrit from him. So if you want to know what it's like to go through an ordeal, I would say study Sanskrit. And then for the last 32 years, I've lived in Wisconsin, teaching there at the University of Wisconsin in a, in a regional campus, uh, Whitewater. Uh, I officially, officially means I announced to myself and friends that I moved to Ojai, uh, where I now live in a retirement community that was not completely flooded at all. It was, we're in good shape, fortunately. Uh, but I go back and visit friends in the summer. A few years ago, I was asked to write an article from, for Prabhuda Bharata, the English language journal of the Ramakrishna Order in India. It's the oldest English language one of the oldest English language periodicals that's in continuous publication. And of course, I was hesitant to write the article, but I was directly asked to do it by one of the Swamis, so I said, okay. Of course, I procrastinated, but I did write it. And part of that article was on asking contributors to ask about their, how they came to hear about Vedanta or their connection with Vedanta. So I'll read a paragraph I wrote. I mean, I could do it extemporaneously, but why bother? So... At the age of 12, I first came into contact with Vedanta through our neighbors here in Santa Barbara. They were three middle-aged women 
who shared the same house and who adopted our family's pregnant runaway cat. Cats will do that, you know. And they changed the name of the cat to Jeannie. And of course, the cat promptly gave birth to a whole litter of really cute kittens. But they inherited the kittens, too, along with the cat. One of the ladies was Catherine Whitmarsh, known to Vedanta friends as Prasanna, um, who had, as a baby, sat in the lap of Swami Vivekananda. So I directly knew someone who sat in the lap of Swami Vivekananda, who came here 175 years ago. I wasn't here at that time, but I missed it. <laughs> so, but still, there's a connection. So another of these ladies was Mrs. Taft, delightful, sweet, wonderful woman, um, who, who liked me for some reason. She liked because of the cat, connection with the cat and the kittens. And she invited me to go with her to cowboy movies in downtown Santa Barbara. And we talked about cowboys and cowboy movies and so on. She also told me about Vedanta and the Vedanta temple and the swamis who gave lectures here. So that was my first contact with Vedanta, cowboys and swamis. <laughs> so the title of the lecture came about spontaneously about two months ago when the nuns asked if I would be willing to give the Sunday talk here at the Vedanta Temple, I replied, yes, I would be happy to. You know, I tend to say yes. When people ask me to do things, I say yes. So if you want to borrow a million dollars, the answer is no. <laughs> then came the harder question. I don't have a million dollars. Then came the harder question. They asked, and what is your topic? I had no idea. But I didn't hesitate, for once. So right away, I heard words coming out of my mouth, and the words said, spiritual procrastination. And there we have it, this enigmatic, seemingly contradictory topic. It's enigmatic because it was a mystery to me and others what I would say, and it pretty much still is, however, I got it all written down, so in case, you know, I forget. But it's contradictory, since spirituality has to do with the timeless and with freedom from psychological resistance, whereas the issue of procrastination has to do with time and with psychological resistance. So how can we put these two together, spirituality and procrastination? Well, that's what I will attempt to do today. And you can be the judge if, if, if we succeed. It's an important topic for me personally because these two words have reveal aspects of my personality and lived experience. No doubt all of us here share an interest in spirituality, and perhaps many of you struggle with procrastination in one form or another. As the Sanskrit saying affirms, Vasudaiva Kutumbakam, the whole world is my family. Another affirmation on our common humanity that has inspired me for most of my life is from the second century BC Roman playwright Terence. And it goes like this Homo sum. Humani nihil ame alienum puto. 
Somehow things sound better in Latin. So the English translation is, I am a human being, and I think nothing human is alien to me. I love that translation. And of course, Vedanta teaches very much the same thing, that there's the whole world, all humanity is, is our family. We are one human family. At times, it seems a really dysfunctional family. But still, nothing human is foreign to us. So I hope some of the ideas, quotations, reflections I share today will prove helpful in your own lives. And my talk will cover several interrelated topics. First, I will explore procrastination, what it is and how it affects us in different ways, and how it manifests itself differently in different people, with different personality types, and at different times and stages in our lives. I'll then give an example of procrastination from my own earlier stage as a student, and will we'll share with you advice that I received at that time. Of course, I could give many examples of procrastination from my life, but I'll just pick one because time is limited. Then I'll introduce what I call the procrastination matrix. I mentioned that to my sister, and she said, that sounds impressive, and I said, I know, but I made it up. <laughs> so, let's see here. Don't worry, we still have a lot of pages to go. So sometimes our, procra our procrastination may be hidden behind hyperactivity. Ah, I skipped a page. You know, you wouldn't know, but I do. So I, I would like to be practical, so I will share in the talk some ideas and techniques that I have found helpful to deal with procrastination as it, when it becomes a problem. Procrastination, like other things in life, may have, a, may have a positive as well as a negative side. So I will consider the positive side of putting things off. And we'll relate this to the idea of auspicious times and the operation of natural cycles in ourselves and in the larger physical world. Finally, I will suggest how overcoming procrastination can help us integrate three fundamental spiritual insights into our own lives. And I will conclude with a quotation from Sri Ramakrishna. So that's a lot to cover, but don't worry. If I don't finish it all today, we can always do it manana. <laughs> Procrastination defined. The Oxford Dictionary of the English Language gives the following definition of procrastination. And I hope you appreciate this because I went online and tried to look it up and they charged money for me to access it. So <laughs> here's their definition. Of course, that's creme de la creme, the Oxford Dictionary of the English Language. So here's the definition. The action or habit of postponing or putting something off, delay, dilatoriness. Very British, I'm impressed. Dilatoriness often with the sense of deferring through indecision when early action would have been preferable. Even as a retired scholar, I still love etymologies in German, Wortgeschichte. German says things 
very clearly and precisely, and unless you've studied Greek, etymology may not be your household word. But it's the history, it's the history of a word. So it's fascinating. So our, word, our procrastination in English, not surprisingly, comes from Latin. You know, most of our words come from Latin or Greek. And the Latin word is procrastinare, which I give an Italian pronunciation. It's to put off until the next day. A verb made up of pro, toward, and crastinus means belonging to tomorrow. So going toward tomorrow. So you have an action and you push it toward tomorrow. Therefore, the etymology of procrastination is perfectly expressed in the well-known maxim, do, do not put off till tomorrow what you can do today. We all put stuff off. In the, in the widest sense, procrastination can refer simply to putting something off, whether the something is a challenging task, like preparing a public talk on procrastination. <laughs> By the way, I finished it this morning at 8 a.m. And I arrived, I arrived here about a half an hour early, so it, for me, that's amazing. Our procrastination might involve a physically tiring task like sandbagging our homes in preparation for the atmospheric rivers that are dumping historic amounts of rain on us Californians. Or procrastination may be simply an unpleasant task like preparing our taxes. In addition to challenging our unpleasant tasks, there are many other things that we can put off, such as our reluctance to make an important decision or to make a commitment. Sometimes our procrastination may be hidden behind hyperactivity. For example, when we seem to be keeping busy and completing all sorts of tasks, while in reality, all this activity is a cover-up. Underneath, we are unconsciously putting off facing an unpleasant truth about ourselves or about our life situation. I suspect all of us put stuff off, especially important stuff. I'll, pose, I'll, I'll pause a moment now and let you reflect on your own lives, and I encourage you to identify something, large or small, that you may be putting off. And I encourage you to quietly feel in your body the sense of resistance without judging the feeling or yourself. This is the beginning of a mindfulness practice that I will come back to later. So let's pause for just 30 seconds and I invite you to think of any, is what in your life do you tend to put off? So, if we are honest, we have to admit that procrastination or putting off applies to us all in some way or another. Sadly, 
For some people, for some of us, procrastination becomes an ingrained habit, a character trait, and a way of life. Then it is, then it, then it is in the driver's seat and becomes a problem, not only for ourselves, but for the people around us. Thanks to my reading, personal experiences, and conversations with friends, I've become something of an authority on procrastination. But I, <laughs> it's good to be authority on something, you know. <laughs> I even put off my retirement. Anyway, because I like talking, you know, that's what my sister says. She says, it's a good thing you became a professor, a college lecturer, because you love to talk. Anyway, I realize that procrastination affects different people differently. Nevertheless, there are some basic principles and insights that apply to us all, whatever our stage in life or our personality type. First, let's consider how procrastination, putting things off, relates to different stages of life. A dear friend and colleague, he's the one who gave me this tie. He and his wife gave me this tie, so I'm wearing my lucky tie he gave me. I don't wear it much in Ojai. Anyway, he, like me, taught religious studies at the University of Wisconsin in Whitewater, and he now lives in Evanston, and he phoned me this week unexpectedly and reminded me that it was the anniversary of his wife's birth, Carolyn. She passed away last year after a very long struggle with dementia. He was the primary caregiver for years, and she went through a long, 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 slow, painful decline. Both my friend and his wife, Carolyn, were teachers, and they introduced me to the importance of understanding developmental stages, psychological stages, in order to gain better insight into our students, but also insight into ourselves. And my friend, Dick or Richard, particularly liked the well-known developmental theory of the psychologist Eric Erickson. Probably this was in part because Erickson wrote a very interesting, insightful psychological biography of Martin Luther, the guiding light of the Protestant Reformation. I don't think Luther was a procrastinator, but he had, another, he had other problems. According to Erickson's theory, we develop different capacities or ego strengths at different stages in our life. We experience unique challenges and opportunities at each stage of development as children, teenagers, young adults, mature adults, and us older folks. Seniors is another euphemism. It is not possible to go into this theory fully today, of course, but I, will, but I find it suggestive, and I want to consider some basic virtues Erickson identified as ego strengths that relate to our spiritual development and how this development can be nurtured or delayed. Ideally, as infants, we learn to trust that our basic needs will be met through the loving care we receive from our mother, our primary caregiver. This basic trust, according to Erickson, and I agree, is the foundation of a healthy personality, of what in religious language is called faith. A mature faith is not just a set of beliefs, or what would be worse, a set of dogmas, but a profound trust in the goodness of life. It is, the, it is faith in ourselves, 
and in God or in some higher power, however we define it. It is not surprising that Erickson emphasized Martin Luther's psychological struggle with the issue of basic trust or faith, since Lutheran tradition is famous for its, for its insistence that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, and not through sacraments or through our own outward good works. We are saved by how much, and we are not saved by how much we get done or, or how fast we do it. So this is really great news for us procrastinators. In Erickson's theory, as healthy children, we develop other virtues and ego strengths, such as a sense of autonomy and self-direction. We learn how to play alone as well as with other children. And we also develop a personal initiative. We can do things on our own. As teenagers, we struggle with issues of identity. We want to discover who we are in relationship with our peers, and we begin to consider what our adult role in society will be. As the maxim inscribed over the entrance to the Temple of Apollo at Delphi famous, famously exhorted all who entered, Nothis se alton. Greek sounds impressive too. It means know thyself. Nothi seoton. The Greek word know, nothi, is related to our English word gnosis. Years ago, I, Flanders and Swan had a wonderful song about the gnu, spelled G-N-U, and you probably all gnow about the gnu. So we have gnosis in English, or from Greek, meaning wisdom. In Sanskrit, it's jnana. So gya, jnya, sans, ancient Sanskrit, ancient Greek were related sister languages, both ancient Indo-European languages, and we find many cognate words in Greek, ancient Greek and Sanskrit. For those who are interested in that sort of thing, and I'm one of them. From our teen years onward, many of us are drawn consciously or unconsciously by the challenge, who are we? It's a call to know ourselves, to self-realization. Who am I? Who am I at the deepest level? There is a mantra in Sanskrit that can be used for meditation. I happen to like it. It is, and it can be used for Inquiry. It is ko-hum. Who or what am I? Ko-hum, ko-hum. You can even do it while you're breathing. Inhale, ko-exhale, hum, ko-hum. Who am I? Who is this that's breathing? Who is this that's thinking? Who is this that's asking this question? As many of you know, the great sage Ramana Maharshi recommended this inquiry into the self as the deepest, most direct path to enlightenment. Keep asking yourself, who am I? Who is this? I love the Kano Upanishad, one of the ancient Upanishads, which, which asked that very question. Who is, who is this? What is this mind 
that's constantly propelled to go after things and objects. It's, it's like gravity or it's like a rock rolling downhill. The mind's always going towards something. Who is it that's behind that? That's the beginning of the Keno Upanishad, the ancient Upanishad, the ancient Vedantic scripture. Returning to Erickson's theory, as young adults, we deal with relationships, romantic love, and intimacy. As mature adults, we try to find meaningful work, contribute to society, and care for our families. And in old age, in retirement, many of us may return to the question, who am I, with a renewed depth and urgency. In old age, it is normal to look back over our lives, to remember the people we knew, the choices we made, and to take stock of our successes and losses. This is a, I didn't put this in, but it's a footnote. I taught Plato's Republic for many years as part of a general education course, The World of Ideas, and I love that book, The Republic. Plato, it's one of his most, Plato's most famous writings. And in the beginning, he starts with this question about old age and old men getting together, you know, birds of a feather flock together, and they reminisce about all the wonderful things they could do in their youth and they no longer are capable of. And then this, this, the Republic goes on from there, and one of them says, well, the good thing about old age is uh, now you, can, you, know, you may have the ability to do what is right. And then Socrates asks, well, what is that? What, is it, what does it mean to do what is right? And then the rest of the Republic unfolds. But that'll be another lecture. So Erickson believed that it is the task of old age to seek wisdom and not to fall into despair. We try to make sense of it all and to accept everything that happened, no matter how painful it seemed at the time, with a sense of acceptance and gratitude. And as we look forward in old age, we may come to accept our own mortality and our inevitable death as part of the natural cycle of life. According to Erickson, this is the path to wisdom. A good friend here in Vedanta recently shared with me something she heard from Swami Satyarupananda in India. And he felt this phrase summed up the whole of Indian philosophy, and it can be summed up in this one short phrase. Accept don't expect. I think it's quite profound. I, I would, of course, I can't resist adding to things. So I would say, expect the unexpected, and you won't be surprised or disappointed. You never know what's going to happen next. Life seems to be one darn thing after another. For many of us, life becomes a problem when we expect and refuse to accept. We think reality needs to be the way we want it to be in order for us to be happy. We need people to behave in a certain way, and it's different from the way they're actually behaving. But this failure to accept life is a losing strategy. As a well-known spiritual teacher in Ojai, Byron Katie puts it, when we argue with reality, we always lose. 
An important spiritual practice and part of coming to terms with life is the practice of letting go. Letting go of negative emotions, expectations, and judgments. For those who are interested, I recommend the book by Dr. David Hawkins titled Letting Go. Yes, I do work for the bookstore here. Yes, that's true. <laughs> you can find me there on Saturday mornings. I'm not sure they have that book, but, um, but you can order it, you know. In Vedanta, the English word renunciation is often used to refer to this, but renunciation for many Americans have, can have a negative connotation, you know. We think it may kind of dour, joyless, monastic, just no fun at all. So I think a more neutral term is letting go, but renunciation is the classic term used in Western spiritual life. And in devotional language, this letting go is the profound practice of surrender. Some of you know the writer Michael Singer, and he's written quite a number of books, um, The Untethered Soul and The Surrender Experiment. So it's another writer, uh, current teacher I think is, is, is very fine. We all have trouble letting go, and we also have trouble committing ourselves to something new. Failure to let go is a kind of procrastination. We resist change. We refuse to go with the flow. My brother used to quip. Whenever I said go with the flow, he said, yeah, dead fish can do that. Some of us have trouble letting go of our current stage in life, and we resist entering the next stage. We may also have trouble with challenges each stage in life presents, and we put off learning the lessons of that stage of life and developing the basic character strengths and virtues that Erickson described above. For example, some of us put off leaving college. A surprising number of students that I had were fifth or sixth year college students. And one was so extraordinary and a procrastinator that he was probably seventh or eighth or tenth year senior student, simply refused to graduate. And he kept taking more courses. And, a, and as the same friend I mentioned earlier, my colleague, was his advisor. And he kept saying, if you take this one course, you'll graduate. And he said, I don't want to graduate. So after years as, as a, maybe a tenth year senior, he, became, he had national fame. And he was invited to go to New York City and appear on a television show. And they invited my friend, who was his advisor, to go with, with him. I don't think it was Oprah Winfrey, but something like that. So this, this young man became, had national fame by doing one thing, procrastinating. <laughs> and of course, I was envious and resentful because I didn't get to go. I wasn't his advisor, darn it. So anyway, uh, or like me, some perpetual students end up becoming professors. You know, that's one way to stay on and never leave college. Um, some people identify so much with their job or profession that they fear retirement. I had a colleague who had that problem, and uh, he died in the harness, basically. So, yeah, just would not retire. 
um, they, some people think retirement is like death, you know, and I can assure you it's not. People who are athletic in their youth may resist adjusting to a less strenuous life when they get older. Empty nesters may resist selling their big family home and downsizing. Some elderly drivers insist on driving even when it becomes dangerous to themselves and others. And many seniors try to hang on to their home and resist going to an assisted living place, even when their home is falling down all around them. And many people in our culture refuse to face seriously and deeply the inevitability of their own mortality, their own impending death. Just as we differ in terms of our stage of life, we differ in terms of personality types. There are many personality theories, and to be candid, I love them all. However, can't go into them all today, so I'll just pick one. One of these personality theories is called the Enneagram. Ennea means nine, and gram is a diagram, so it's a star diagram with nine points, and each point uh, represents a different personality configuration. It's Ennea means nine in Greek. And so I used to tell my brother about the Enneagram, and he said, oh, yes, I know about it, the Idiotgram. <laughs> Isn't it great having, you know, siblings? <laughs> so I can't describe all nine types, but here's a description of the basic belief and adaptive strategy of type one. I'll just give the first type. And the type one is the perfectionist. And I'm taking this from the book by Stanford psychiatrist David Daniels and his associate, Virginia Price, entitled The Essential Enneagram. I recommend it. It's a, it's a small book, but it's very, very insightful, and it's based on a lot of research and work with clients and, and others. Perfectionists have come to believe that people are not accepted for who they are. So their adaptive strategy in life is to gain love and self-regard by being good, responsible, conscientious, doing things the correct way, meeting their own high standards, and following the rules. They suppress anger and tend to develop tension and resentment. In terms of spiritual development, when perfectionists put off their own spiritual development, they fail to realize that we are all perfect as we are, complete and whole as we are, that our worth and well-being are inherent, and that, and that the worth and well-being is not dependent on our being right. Does all this sound familiar? Perhaps... Some of us here are perfectionists, or you know someone who is. Similarly, people of each of the other eight personality types have a mistaken belief about themselves and the world, a kind of core belief how they see the world and themselves. And they unconsciously develop a misguided strategy that derives from that mistaken belief. So when you start out with a bad map and keep going, you're not going to end up where you want to go. So spiritual procrastination for a person of one personality type may look very different from that of another. 
My own Enneagram type is the nine, called the mediator or peacemaker. You can get a visual image of this type, of thinking of your grandmother sitting in a comfy chair, sipping tea by the fire. Or think of a cute lapdog resting by the fire and very content. Life is good. No need to get up or do anything. That's my type. So Enneagram type 9 people can have a real problem with procrastination. If you get up from the fire and go outside, it's going to be cold. You may have to piddle so you better go, but you're going to put it off as long as you can. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's a scene from my own student stage in life. Now you're going to get some more Sanskrit. Shubham shigram, ashubham kalaharanam. When it's auspicious, act quickly. When it's inauspicious, kill time. Swami Asayshananda, the former head of the Vedanta Society of Portland, came up to me in the hallway of the Vedanta Society in Portland and quoted this dictum to me along with the translation. That was over four decades ago, and I've never forgotten it, back in the 1970s, shortly after he had given me initiation. He knew I liked Sanskrit, and he knew I'd studied it in grad school. He also knew I was having trouble finishing my PhD dissertation. The clock was ticking, the years were going by, and I was no longer a spring chicken. And I needed to complete the PhD and begin earning a living. It was a case of writer's block, no doubt, but procrastination was not a new problem for me. Rather, it seemed to be a basic part of my personality, a stubborn tendency to put off challenging tasks and to postpone making decisions. To be fair, in the case of the dissertation, there was always one more book to read. I needed to read that book to include it in the dissertation. And then there was always one more chapter. You know, you could just, you've just add one more and on it, on it went. So it wasn't that I was doing nothing, I was doing too much. Shubham shigram. When it's auspicious, act quickly. We, we all know various sayings in English that convey the message to do it now. Time and tide, wait for no man. Strike while the iron is hot. Do it now. These common sayings point to the truth in human experience that there are special auspicious times in our lives when outer circumstances and inner inspiration come together. At these times, we seem to have a breakthrough, and the clouds open a little, and the light shines through, and we can see clearly. What had seemed an unsolvable problem or issue previously now resolves itself almost effortlessly. This momentary breakthrough is sometimes called a eureka moment. And it comes from the story in you know, ancient Greece of uh, Archimedes sitting in his bathtub and the water overflowed from the bathtub. And he realized at that moment a basic principle in, in physics uh, and shouted, Eureka, I have it. And he jumped up and ran down the street shouting, Eureka. Unfortunately, he forgot he was naked, so, you know, 
So I think it's socially better to wait and have a eureka moment when we're fully clothed. In Japanese Buddhism, the term kensho, see, I speak Japanese too. <laughs> yeah, arigato. Refers to a breakthrough and a spiritual insight. We get a glimpse of our true nature. <laughs> what Buddhists call the Buddha mind or the big mind. Sometimes we can identify what circumstance or condition brought about this insight. You know, in, in Zen, sometimes they tell the story of someone who was walking across the courtyard and a tile slipped off the roof and hit the, the, the pavement and there was shattering noise and there was an awakening. And in the absence of that, the Zen masters would, you know, hit or slap the disciples to wake them up. That's why I prefer Vedanta. <laughs> in any case, it's vital to take advantage of a breakthrough of insight when it occurs, to act on what we have realized. Not to act is spiritual procrastination. Shubham shigram. When it's auspicious, act quickly. Like all habits, procrastination is reinforced by repetition. But we can consciously substitute good habits for bad ones. We can cultivate the habit of acting quickly when circumstances are favorable. A famous passage in the Bhagavad Gita 6.5, Udareta atmanatmanam natmanam avasadeyate. Atmaiva yatmano bandur, atmaiva ripur atmanaha. Literally, one should uplift oneself by one's own self. So let one not weaken this self, for the self is the friend of oneself, and the self is the enemy of the self. Whoa, that's a lot of self. So there are different interpretations of this verse. It's quite profound, and, and as you know, in Indian tradition, the great philosophers have written commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita and other sacred texts. But I like the following interpretation, and I don't know where I got it. I may have made it up, but I like it. One should uplift oneself by one's good habits, so let one not weaken oneself. For the good habits are one's friend, and the bad habits are one's enemy. One can consciously cultivate positive habits that will be one's friend in times of need. I will return to this point at the end, and I have a quote from Ramakrishna who says something along this line. To overcome the habit of procrastination in addition, we can practice mindfulness. As many, as you, many of you know that right mindfulness is part of the Buddhist Noble Eightfold Path. It's seven on the Eightfold Path. It's become very popular today, well-known, especially through the writings and, 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 and talks and, and, uh, and teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. And mindfulness practice is studied at universities now. Uh, Richard Davidson at UW-Madison, where I live, uh, is famous for his studies into meditation and especially mindfulness. The Harvard psychologist Ellen Langer describes mindfulness as, quote, the simple process of actively noticing things. 
And she goes on to explain that, quote, when mindful, we notice things we didn't notice before, and we come to see that we didn't know the things we thought we knew, as well as we thought we knew them. Everything becomes interesting and potentially useful in a new way. So we can apply mindfulness to our habit of procrastination or any bad habit or just to ourselves in general. We can engage in self-inquiry to watch what we do and ask, why am I doing this? And become curious in a non-judgmental way. Just watch what is going on here. There are simple techniques to deal with procrastination, doing things now, such as you know, making lists and prioritizing the list. And that gets to the, my procrastination matrix. I actually read about this in a book years ago. I, I think the name I made up, Procrastination Matrix, but essentially when, there are, when we have things to do and we could look at them, and there are pleasant things and unpleasant things. We have urgent things. If you, get a, if you get a letter in the mail that says urgent, it isn't. It's a fundraiser. It's not urgent. So there are pleasant things, unpleasant things, urgent, not urgent, and important and unimportant. And you can put those in a matrix and you get these different little boxes with each, each activity. Our human tendency is to do first those things that are pleasant, or perhaps we do first the things that we think are urgent. Or we do both. If they're pleasant and urgent, boy, we're on it right away. However, if we're not careful, we let the little pleasures and urgent trivialities fill our daily lives. And we can always sit down and have another cup of tea. That's, that's my personality type. So we put what we put to ten, we tend to put off those things that are important, but not urgent. Those are the things that we have to be mindful of, that we're tending to put off. And spiritual life tends to fall in that category. It's important, but it's not urgent. Here again, we have spiritual procrastination. Shreyas and Preyas. My own guru, Swami Sheshananda, often referred to two Sanskrit words that occur in the Kata Upanishad, indicating two paths through life, Shreyas, the better path of spiritual realization, and Preyas, the worldly path of pleasure-seeking. In the Upanishad, the Lord of Death, Yama, says to his disciple, Nachiketa, the better, Shreyas, is one thing, the pleasurable, Preyas, surely another. These two, with different goals, both bind a man. Of these, good attends him who embraces the better. Whosoever embraces the pleasurable misses the goal. The better and the pleasurable both approach a man. Looking at them from one side and the other, the wise man discriminates, and he chooses the better over the pleasurable. The fool, clinging to possessions, chooses the pleasurable. Another, two other Sanskrit terms Swami Sheshanand used to use in, in, in his teaching were pravriti nivriti. In life, pravriti refers to evolution, the outward tendency to go outward, do things, accomplish things. Nivriti is involution, the inner spiritual path, 
going within, discovering who we are, self-realization, what is the reality underlying my life and the world. So I was going to talk a little bit about auspicious times in various cultures, about the natural cycles of life. Native American culture, many traditional religions emphasize auspicious times. Shubham shigram, when it's auspicious, move quickly. If you know Indians, you know it's common to look, look on an astrological lunar calendar to figure out a date for a marriage or important event. If you read about spiritual teachers, ah, let's look at the, you know, let's look at their astrological sign. Let's look at the chart and see when they were born and what their tendencies are. It's a very strong part of Indian tradition, but I think other ancient cultures and traditions have the sense of auspicious time, not only natural cycles, but they're invisible spiritual cycles that are, that are occurring throughout life. And so be mindful of that and take advantage of sacred time, of auspicious time. So procrastination as waiting for that auspicious time is not necessarily a bad thing. That's the positive side. Uh, instead of forcing things to happen, let them happen. And wait and look at everything and, and see when is, it, when is it auspicious to act? When is it auspicious to make this decision and so on? So that can all be very useful. So spiritual practice is about discovering the deeper nature of reality. And I'm skipping a bunch of pages, you'll be glad to know. So in essence, I can tell you the essence, I was thinking about it, what is it you discover through spiritual life and practice? Three things I want to highlight is love. Second is interdependence. And the third is oneness. So love, of all the great religions, Christianity, perhaps more than any other, puts emphasis on love. Those of you who have read Ramakrishna's teaching, he also stresses love, that the path for us today is the path of love, devotion. Christ recommended two great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Mark 12, 28. See, I can quote chapter and verse. Another, another passage I like very much is from 1 John 4, 16. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Another spiritual insight is interdependence. Of the great religions, it seems to me that Buddhism, we have, you know, Ramakrishna here, and we have the Buddha over there, and we have Christ over here. So these, you know, all three are present here. Of the great religions, it seems to me that Buddhism best expresses the interconnectedness and interdependence of all living beings. There are no isolated individuals as seen from a deeper point of view. Thich Nhat Hanh coined the term interbeing to express this sense of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all things. Everything in our life, everything we experience, everyone here, everything is interdependent, cannot exist alone and does not exist alone. And so, of course, this counteracts our Western obsession with individualism and all that kind of thing, which is okay, uh, but it's not reality. Vedanta stresses perhaps 
more than other traditions. It's in all traditions, but Vedanta stresses oneness. Ekam eva advitiyam Brahma. Brahman, the divine, the absolute, is one without a second. Behind all the apparent ever-changing diversity of the world and our individual lives, there is one changeless, all-inclusive, divine, all-pervading reality. Our senses tell us everything is separate. We are separate. Everything out there is separate. Our spiritual intuition tells us we are one. Everything is one. And deep spiritual experience comes through dedicated spiritual practice and confirms this intuition. It grows with practice. So are we ready? We only hear when we are ready. Probably we have all had the experience of reading a book or article a second time, perhaps years later, and we notice something very important that we completely missed before. Or we happen to remember something someone said to us long ago, and we suddenly realize the deeper meaning. Therefore, the great religions all emphasize the importance of repeated reading sacred texts, of hearing oral traditions, of coming to Sunday lectures. Oh, I'm just joking. <laughs> I didn't write that, no. So, uh, yes, repetition is very important. And especially, as uh, my, my Swami Yasheshanan again said, to hear something from someone who has realized the truth of what they're saying. So if you hear something from someone who's merely repeating borrowed wisdom, I call it, uh, it doesn't have the aim, same impact of someone who's telling you something directly. They've experienced it directly. Much more powerful impact. Let me conclude with a quotation from Sri Ramakrishna. Time is necessary for religious awakening. Everything rests upon time. For all religious awakening, we must wait. But in the meanwhile, the precepts of a guru, the spiritual teacher, should be carefully followed, for the impression of these precepts in the mind of a worldly man may be of great help in time of need. Another reason is that constant hearing of these precepts may gradually remove the evil effects of worldly attachment, as the effects of drunkenness can be removed by making the drunkard drink rice water, so the intoxication of worldly-mindedness can be cured by constant hearing of the precepts of a holy guru." End quote. So that was from Sri Ramakrishna. So I hope you'll find some things in this talk helpful. And I will pause now. We'll have, I think, some music. And then we'll conclude with an, some announcements. I have some announcements. Thank you, Jayanti. Thank you very much. Beautiful. I was going to say the same chant in Sanskrit, but you've already done it, so perfect. Um, there are a few announcements. Tomorrow night, 5 p.m., here in the temple, Swami Prapanananda, who I think is the head of the center in Sacramento here in California, will give a talk here at 5 p.m. tomorrow, followed by a potluck meal after Vespers. And Vespers, of course, is every night at 6. So after the Vespers, there will be a potluck meal in, down in the convent. 
Sunday, March 3rd, the topic will be The Inner Light by Swami Vedarupananda. So thank you very much. If you, I'm, I'll come back if you're interested. If you have any questions, uh, you're welcome to come back after the lecture, and I'll be here as long as you, as long as you want. So thank you very much. Well, maybe I'll complete, have a chant, okay. Asatoma Sangamaya Tamasoma Jotir Gamaya Mrityorma Amritam Gamaya Avir Avir Maeti Rudrayate Dakshinam Mukam Te Namam Pahinityam Lead us from the unreal to the real, from darkness to light and from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace.